Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I recently had the pleasure, and and I mean that really sincerely, of talking with David Edwards from um, his work in Paris about his recent book, The Lab, Creativity and Culture, and that came out with Harvard University Press in 2010. Now, to say that I found the reading of this book and the ensuing conversation inspiring is a dramatic understatement. Um, This is a wonderful book. It aims to be both a manifesto, but in the best sense of the word, a kind of call for difference and a a statement about what it can mean to think beyond the boundaries of the way we usually think about the arts, about the sciences, and about what can happen when we create spaces, um, be they physical laboratories with laboratories conceived broadly, or be they sort of emotional and mental spaces um, to bring otherwise what we think of as otherwise disparate fields of inquiry and types of inquiry into dialogue. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's inspiring, again, in all kinds of ways. And we had a really good time talking about both the material here and the possibilities of using the lab and using art science as a concept to inspire and provoke all kinds of innovations um, in the classroom, on the street, in the museum, and far beyond. So I hope you enjoy. So hello, David. Hello, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with David Edwards about his book, The Lab, Creativity and Culture. Um, Now, this is a book that I had just a tremendously pleasurable time reading. It's a book that works on so many levels for so many different kinds of communities and Um, Clearly, I think that's the point, and and we'll get to that. But also, um, the reason why I was interested um, in talking um, with David today for new books in science, technology, and society um, is that this is, uh, I think, of particular relevance to the field of STS um, and people who work on and think with and think about STS um, in all kinds of institutional or non-institutional settings. So, David, thank you so much for making time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you again. I'm happy to be here. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, David, can you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? How, what brought you to this um, this subject, this topic? Yes, yeah, this crazy intersection. Well, uh, briefly, I am uh, trained in uh, actually chemical engineering and applied math, and uh, early in my career, uh, focused on very theoretical kinds of things. Having said that, I got there in a sort of a very circuitous way and, and was sort of kicking and screaming through school, never very happy about it, and uh, thought of doing many things, including pursuing a writing career at some point. But at the end of the day, math worked for me, and so I did that and uh, ended up publishing an article in the journal Science in uh, 1997, which um, uh, caught um, some the, the attention of some capital uh, venture capitalists, which was... Uh, very unknown um, group of people.
people to me at the time and uh, sort of frightening with the idea that they wanted to start a company based on this article that I had done. And I was uh, uh, nevertheless flattered uh, that they thought it was worth uh, investing in and ended up spending a year doing that. And uh, the company sold. And I mentioned all of that only to say that it was a, quite a uh, learning process for me. And when I came back to teach at Harvard University a couple years later, having run the subsidiary for a little while, I had this will, uh, both to understand what had happened to me and also to give students an opportunity to learn what I felt I had learned by leaving um, the academy. And it was very much related to having somebody bet on a dream mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and actually assuming the risk of that dream with uh, friends of mine uh, who were equally innocent and equally uh, dreamers. And uh, that led me to where I am right now um, to just skip a few beats. <laughs> Okay, great. Now, you mentioned that you were interested in one point at a write, in a writing career. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about that aspect of this project a little bit. I mean, as we'll see in the course of the next um, hour or maybe a little bit less than an hour, um, there are a lot of aspects of this book and this project that are very um, intimately concerned with form. Um, with the form of a project, an object, a group of people as a way to manifest a dream or a set of ideas. Now, how I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you decided on this particular form. So as somebody who has been committed to writing, why write this book? Um, why write a book about this? And, and can you talk a little bit about how you decided on how you wanted this book to look, how you wanted to structure it? Well, uh, there's many ways to respond to that, and I, I appreciate you diving into the core of the story here. Let me maybe take a step back and say that since I was a little kid, I have always written uh, and generally fiction. And I, I my first experience with um, writing a work of fiction, I was in fifth grade and wrote a book, you know, wrote my first novel and gave it to my teacher, Mrs. Volkswagen, who... Uh, um, I waited for her to come back and give me some feedback. And, and uh, it was quite a personal story, actually not a very positive one. But I, for years and years, uh, had this uh, passion. Um, and writing for me, uh, ultimately, as I moved on in my career, became a, a way, still is a way, of understanding my life and the world around me and quite a private um, obsession. Uh, so I have written many books that I never uh, even made an uh, effort to publish. When it came to uh, the laboratoire and the the lab, as I describe it in the book, uh, which I, I did, uh, just to um, jump back a second, I did after having gone to Harvard, I spent several years there, then I did leave and come to Paris, where I am right now, to open up this lab. Uh, and I did make a conclusion in that process that the kind of environment, kind of creative environment I had actually grown up in, having not really ever quite understood it or um, been able to articulate it, was a creative environment where the vocabulary of creation was artistic. And I had simply not had a forum in which I could um, adequately express that, although I um, searched out a forum of uh, fiction, but in my public life, I was in a scientific environment. The forum of idea exchange was the peer-reviewed um, um, uh, publication uh, process and uh, sort of scientific uh, conference process. 
and which worked for me, but it was clearly not the primary form of my sort of creative expression. And so I uh, ultimately, in um, starting the Laboratoire, began to write publicly, and I began to publish uh, different books in the, the lab. Uh, the book that we're talking about here today was the last of a series of books that I wrote, all of which were quite like the other things I've written over the last 30 years in my own life, uh, works in progress and uh, efforts to understand the world around me. Now, that is sort of anecdotally um, interesting, maybe, but to, I think, answer more uh, centrally your question, I don't believe today, uh, given where I'm at, that creativity, innovation, or even the general notion of idea translation can be understand, understood if we're not actually translating ideas. I think that the sort of detached view of how the river moves around our feet is um, not nearly as true or as meaningful, um, and, and I guess as a creator is understandable, as the view from the person who's sort of uh, twisting around through the river and trying to explain what's going on. And so this book very much has a lot of that. It's, um, uh, it's the, uh, the, 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 as we say in, in, in fluid mechanics, the Lagrangian point of view of, of how you innovate. And um, so I think there's a couple things that explain the form of the book. Uh, one of those is my uh, own intuition that ideas are ultimately stories and are sort of fascinating to us and in true in a certain way if they engage us as a, a good story does. And so the, the book is, is full of stories. Um, and the second thing, it is, it is very much a, a work uh, in progress and, and an effort um, to understand um, creativity in this post-Google generation with the reader. That's, that's great. And I think um, you just mentioned fluid mechanics sort of offhand. It's really interesting because a lot of the people who I've spoken to in very different fields, but, you know, largely related to STS, who are writing about very different kinds of topics right now are coming to fluid mechanics in the kind of Michel Serre sense as a model for understanding the creative process and understanding what it might look like to yeah. write history. And, and this sort of swirling back on itself almost musically, but still coming back to these central ideas of this almost manifesto, um, I think, as you put it in the book, as, as we'll get to, is very powerful, I think, as a means of translating these ideas. No, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I was trained that way, and so that I kind of think that way, but it is true that you find a lot of that language, and there is something that goes on in the both individual as well as collective creative process that is a kind of flow, a kind of mystical sort of process that we go through. And and we sort of enjoy it more twisting through the water than we do standing on the river and kind of explaining how eddies form, basically. 
And uh, yeah, so that's pretty fun. That's right. And one you mentioned also, incidentally, in the book, and I just ordered um, these two books, that you've also written um, two other experimental kinds of books, or at least two at the times of this publication, in the graphic novel format. This is Niche and Whiff for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book. What brought you to that particular form? And what's been the um, the response or the engagement around those books, which seem really fascinating other experimental writing genres that engage with this project? Yeah, well, they, they, uh, so, uh, let me just say that I was several months before I opened the laboratoire, which, uh, for your listeners is a cultural center in the center of Paris where we do uh, experiments with leading artists and designers at Frontiers of Science. And before I opened the laboratoire, there were lots of questions, uh, from, uh, the media and other people, uh, about what this would be and why actually I was doing it. And, uh, while I was in the midst of the first two experiments with Fabrice Hubert, who's a, a plastic artist here and, and a designer, Machibano, um, it was fun. I was really reassured, but I was pretty clueless how this would ultimately be understood by the public when we opened, uh, because it seemed to me that the, the fun of it was actually the doing the experiment and developing these projects with these two uh, the artists and the designer. And so it occurred to me that a catalog in a conventional sense wouldn't make any sense, and that in a way the story here uh, was uh, an emotional one, was a uh, a ultimately a fictional one. And so I, I wrote Niche as a uh, graphic novel, uh, thinking of it as a novel catalog, as I called it. And I intertwined the stories of Fabrice and uh, Mathieu. Fabrice, at the very last moment, didn't want his name actually associated with the character, so he's got another name. But ultimately, um, the, the, it, it's all true and none of it's true. And, uh, and, and it caught what I understood to be the um, spirit of the uh, opening uh, exhibits. Um, and I wrote the first with uh, Jay Cantor, who's a um, well-known novelist. And, uh, and uh, in the second, uh, I wrote uh, by myself. But in both cases, I had an uh, artist, or in the second case, a manga artist from Japan involved. And so they were just lots of fun, again, trying to understand, trying to communicate. And... You know, I think that the books are sort of hard to penetrate for um, somebody who's not uh, been there. But uh, have a read and let me know. Okay. <laughs> when Amazon gets it to me, absolutely. Um, so let's actually, you've mentioned uh, the laboratoire. So let's just dive right in um, for listeners. You start out, um, the book really sets out a series of themes that are going to be um, sort of weaving through the entire book, but are sort of treated in... Um, a concentrated way in a series of chapters on dreams, um, art science lab, education, culture, and so on and so forth. So you start us off by talking about the idea of a laboratory in general, broadly defined as a space of experimentation. Um, and you introduce to us the laboratory uh, that you are founding or the, the set of laboratory um, art science labs that you are working with now as being inspired by some similar initiatives by, um, or some related initiatives by Ken Arnold at the Wellcome Collection and Michael John Gorman at the Science Gallery in Dublin. Can you say a little bit about the, the founding um, of Le Laboratoire and the, the sources of inspiration that you found? Absolutely. So 
And I should just uh, point out, there was a, a book called Art, Science, uh, Creativity in the Post-Google Generation that I published before this book, which kind of goes back to the inspiration of the lab, the lab in a very kind of um, um, abstract way. <laughs> To jump into chapter one and what I um, am driving at here, there is uh, both in my own personal life, but actually uh, very much um, internationally right now, this recognition that what we think of as culture is increased today. And what's resonating with uh, a um, significant um, portion of the culture consumers today is not the, say, 19th century um, form of culture, which was relatively static, relatively uh, one-way communication. We were learning in the sense that my, my students might have learned 30 years ago in my class but are not at all interested in learning today. It's, it's much more of a dialogue, much more experimental. Uh, we are, as cultural uh, consumers and, and, and cultural uh, producers increasingly the same um, individual, if you will, and also not really believing or even searching for an answer or a truth, but are much more interested in this sort of experimental process. And that is clear in uh, music and contemporary art and, and dance and, and theater and, 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 uh, and probably in scientific research as well. So it's sort of a fascinating phase we've come into where the process of um, creating, whether it's Apple computer and my iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, there's sort of this process, why is the iPhone actually, or, or Yahoo, and I have pictures of the Yahoo page, which looked nothing like they looked a year ago or a year before. What is Yahoo exactly? And so there's this sort of process that, is becoming increasingly the uh, vector of uh, culture uh, delivery and exchange. And so that actually is very much resonant with the notion of a lab. A lab, if you walk into a lab, it's, it's either uh, not at all interesting. Um, it's certainly not interesting because of the beakers and the whatever else is sitting on the lab benches or whatever machines. But it's interesting to the extent that you can perceive the ideas that are flowing through that lab. And so there are people who don't sleep and who are just come totally obsessed when they come into the lab. But any of us who come in and are looking what's on the wall, we're completely, so there's something about the lab uh, as, a, as a, just a general concept that is uh, very resonant with the sort of milieu of cultural exchange that um, we seem to be um, looking for today. And so the lab here in uh, Paris and, and uh, in, in lab environments that we've been uh, opening in different parts of the world uh, aims at uh, curating that. And uh, well, interestingly, what I point out in the book, there were a couple other experiments that are now just going super well. One in Dublin by Michael John Gorman, Science Gallery, and the other in uh, London, uh, uh, funded by the Wellcome Trust, uh, called the Wellcome Collection, and headed by Ken Arnold. And two, just uh, wonderful people, uh, very different backgrounds. All three of us have very different backgrounds. And for three completely unrelated um, personal and institutional stories, opened 
within a year, uh, institutions that had various and have various resonances with what we're doing here. The Science Gallery, in, in, uh, as I said, in, in Dublin, uh, a project with the Trinity College and, uh, and the Welcome Collection, uh, which is much more of a museum kind of space uh, with, the, uh, with the Welcome Trust. So I, I had kind of through the book, I sort of jumped back and forth between our different uh, models. I think this is kind of like the early days of car production where we're <laughs> Figuring this out, and um, and it's sort of fun to uh, to, to to see um, uh, which car is going to maybe several, hopefully many as the cars will be coming out of this. That sounds great. And and thinking about these different spaces that are kind of engaged in the same uh, celebration of this process and of this dialogue and kind of creative juxtaposition as an ongoing um, passionate activity. Um, it's not just uh, one of the things that the book I think shows really well and inspires us to think about in really wonderful ways is that this doesn't just have to happen um, in these institutional spaces that are explicitly named thus, right? I mean, you sort of, um, and one of the, the, one of the spaces that this can happen, that this sort of spirit of experiment and spirit of embracing risk-taking and not being moved by fear is the classroom. Um, so you, you, do I think a really wonderful and inspiring um, kind of work here in giving credit to and showing the really generative force of students in making this happen and the way that you really transformed um, your classroom into an idea translation class at Harvard, um, which was really at the beginning of this process. Can you talk a little bit about this idea translation class yep. and also maybe describe a typical class meeting for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, and, and I uh, in the in the book point out that um, what we're talking about here, is, while it has all kinds of contemporary resonance, in the end is something familiar in uh, family units and work um, environments, and going back to the beginning of uh, civilization, it is especially worth talking about. And I'm getting to the educational um, class here, but I just want to mention that. The reason why these ideas seem hopefully um, disruptive and, and also um, uh, worth talking about is that we've become so um, institutionalized uh, for lots of good reasons over the last 50 years that whether it's culture or education, um, not to mention in many ways um, industry, we have become uh, sort of functional within a certain uh, department or within a certain kind of institution. And if our ideas lead us out of that, um, we sort of become dysfunctional. And that is uh, so anti-human uh, in a way, and it's so anti-historical in a way that it's worth talking about and actually giving a name to it. And so I talk about art science as this process that is just the core of creativity, but is sort of shoved out of our institutions and including out of our classroom. And so there's a lot going on right now, again, about in, in the context of education uh, nationally in the United States, internationally, certainly in Canada and, and elsewhere in the, in the world where we are recognizing, you no, know, it's pretty weird. If you look at what CEOs are looking for in their um, incoming employees, these are qualities of open-mindedness, of, of listening well, of being able to take, new information and process it towards problems that have never been defined before. And these kinds of uh, abilities are 
really not being taught in the classical educational process. And and so there's this rethinking of how should we be teaching. And, and so I think what's going on in my class is reflective of that. So what goes on in my class? So the uh, notion here in this class is that we seed uh, – so the class right now is called How to Create Things and Have Them Matter. And, the, and the, uh, it invites undergraduates from any concentration. There are a few graduate students and design students. And we um, present at the beginning of the class 10 or more uh, blue sky ideas. Um, these are typically art and design ideas at some frontier of science. And now we tend to have a theme, uh, uh, some science theme, just to get um, some coherence. Uh, and when I'll come back to why, but anyway, so we give these ideas, really blue sky ideas that can be defined in a paragraph. And it may be, for example, you know, the world is, uh, in, and I should mention, these are all ideas that are aiming at some major opportunity or, or need. And so it might be an idea like uh, water transport, which becomes a major you know, global problem, and particularly in certain parts of the world, and the biological cell is sort of a human way of transporting water. And so can you imagine uh, new ways of carrying water based on the biological cell? And so that idea, uh, students kind of um, choose ideas that interest them, and we form groups them around these ideas. And for a um, part of the semester, the students are remaking that idea into an idea that they feel passionate about. And uh, and then finally, we work with them through the semester to help them um, convince us that. A, there's a major problem. B, that hasn't been solved before. C, that they've got a really great idea. It could be a purely artistic idea. And uh, give us background and then try and sell us on a first experiment that we'll invest in and send them somewhere in the world to carry that idea a little bit further. And um, that's the class. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain, um, you make a point later on in the book that um, it's very, very important for an art science lab to never be a purely commercial business, right? So in the context of, for those of us who are teachers um, of various levels, um, in the context of a class, there tends to be such an emphasis at the end of the day for the students on something that might be translatable in the educational context as a purely commercial level, right? The grade, the outcome. How do you preserve structurally uh, that sense of creativity um, that you're aiming for in the context um, or in a context which is so... Um, institutionally defined as being about the outcome for a lot of the students? So, well, it is, as you can imagine, an elusive uh, goal here. And uh, what's critically important is that the students, and or at least some of the students in each group, have this passion moment. And what I should mention, what is turned out to be critical in my view, is that we have um, resources that have, uh, you know, they don't have to be great resources, but resources that come from different interested parties. It could be foundations or it could be groups inside the university that were, that we, that are set aside and there's this dialogue going on with students from about a third of the way into the semester saying, you know, this is about a class, but it's also about your idea. And if you really want to pursue this idea, we actually have resources that we could bet on this idea with. And so that's one thing. And I'll come back to the second thing is, is that these ideas, we then encourage these ideas uh, to move forward in um, different translational environments. And I'm going to be a little bit abstract here because the question is a sort of a profound in, in many ways. 
and, and then can get to be more concrete. It's important in general uh, in this idea development process to help the students see how to share their ideas as cultural forms. In other words, to find audiences and uh, ways of um, installation, exhibition that can engage public interest, could be a small public or a large public, around the idea itself and the, the kind of the idea motion in the, in, the, in the sense that I was mentioning earlier. It's kind of most interesting in a way is not iPhone 1, 2, 3. It's kind of iPhone 1, 2, 3. It's kind of this translation process. And so the if you look at Silicon Valley or Off-Broadway or a couple of environments I, I talk about, if you look at really interesting innovation environments and, and, um, and, and what I think is most important about those environments, there's always a cultural community that can look at what everybody else would call failure if they're measuring the outcome. And, and that environment can say, ah, this is success. And in a Silicon Valley environment, it's all these startups that are losing money. And, every, and, and, and if anybody were to measure, like, well, how <laughs> profitable are these companies? Well, they're not. They're losing money. But anybody who has that culture can go in that, you know, a startup X and sort of know in a certain cultural way that, you know, this is really um, a worthwhile activity. And it's kind of the off-Broadway environment where people are maybe not singing perfectly on key and there maybe things are happening that shouldn't happen in a Broadway production. But there's an audience there that loves that. And, and, and is specifically interested in the kind of imperfection. And so you're looking to, um, A, to answer your question, take the passion of the students so that this is increasing, that the grade is kind of let's get beyond that, right? And so that's, and secondly, and, and to do that, you do need to kind of put a certain bet on the table and, and give the students uh, this, um, the credibility that, that they um, uh, often don't feel in moving into this kind of really dreamy environment. And the second thing is to help them move into a translation environment where they can exhibit their ideas and get these ideas moving before they have to write a business plan, if they ever do. And I should also say that we never have all of these ideas. We uh, completely focused on commercial um, uh, sort of issues. And so I, it's, it's, I would say at least half are humanitarian or artistic, um, uh, just purely artistic. And that's a, just a fabulous um, environment uh, for everyone because there's, uh, at the end of the day, um, just a fundamental human interest in all of these kinds of uh, uh, outcome and processes. And, uh, and so I, I think that's not quite an answer. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> No, it's great. No, it's great. I mean, and it sort of it makes me you know, what you're what you're describing and what you're talking about and this energy and passion also um, evokes implicitly another theme that really runs through the entire book and animates um, a lot of the the energy coming out of this book, um, which is the the importance of a youth or a kind of youthfulness, right? Um, and that doesn't have to mean young people chronologically, but sort of a spirit of the kind of youthful um, risk-taking and youthful band-making, as you talk about creative bands, um, that inspire exactly the kind of um, sort of creative risk-taking in all fields that you're aiming for. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. That's 
one of the great um, unspoken truths of uh, creating and and uh, innovating is that you know we we all become children in the process and and one of the things that I say to my students my first class inevitably that my goal in this class is to preserve the one thing that you are doing everything to eliminate and that's your innocence right and so there's something that goes on in the educational process where we're sort of beating out of um, our students um, the notion of uh, raising a hand if they don't know what they're going to say or um, actually making any kind of a suggestion of prediction if they can't know the outcome and and if you think about it that's so um, ludicrous in a world where you know, nobody, not the president of the United States, not anybody really knows any, almost anything actually about what tomorrow's going to be. And so to think that we're raising kids um, only to talk about what they know is sort of frightening. So there's something about the, and I talk in my, the book quite a bit about my own children. I have three little boys, um, nine going on 11 and going on 13. And I have, you know, clearly am inspired watching them and their um, comfort with their innocence and uh, how they use it to their um, advantage. And so I try and analyze that a bit in the book. And, and as you mentioned, the, the band making um, kind of thing, how they, you know, when we start anything and, and I, I think about theater a lot, there's a lot that goes on in um, starting, um, you know, companies or even writing a novel where there's something theatrical happening. And the, the, the the shared risk taking uh, that happens just before the curtain goes up, and it's always fascinating to any of us who watch how um, performances uh, come about with all this chaos. And there's nobody really in charge, but somehow it all happens, and it goes up, and it, there it is. And it's um, it's fun, uh, partly even though we may not admit it, because we're all kind of taking a big risk and we're sharing it, and we're not kind of really admitting to each other that this could be a complete disaster that we'll never get over. And, and kids, uh, kids kind of, because they are um, every day, every year of their young lives, walking onto a new stage, uh, doing that. And so they're, they're and I, I talk about my three boys who are very different, and yet they all sort of minimize their um, risk in a certain way by, by finding um, friends whose um, interpretation of risk is, is kind of uh, like they kind of ignore the risk that, that they're really, which is sort of fascinating to me. And one of the really useful things about that, I think, um, in the book and the way you've written this is that by bringing your family explicitly into the, into the discussion and into the way you're writing about this process, you're also strategically helping to break down one of the things that, that holds, at least for academics reading this, the kind of sense of an institutional coherence and the, the um, demands of an institution um, and your life as a unit in an institution um, together, which is this idea that, you know, your personal life and yourself and your home and your family are separate from this, you know, sort of work realm. Um, and I think increasingly um, a lot of us are really starting to push against that um, and push past and ask, you know, why should that be the case? That makes no sense if we're trying to actually integrate passion and personal commitment um, and a more public, you know, more of a public engagement into what we're doing in these 
um, four walls of a, of a building um, on a college campus, for example. So I think that actually strategically in the way you wrote this um, really worked well for well, the overall theme. That's really nice to say that. I mean, I think it's, you know, and there's probably lots of reactions to that. And, and as you are super aware yourself, um, the what is possible and what is not uh, list is, is quite long in an academic um, setting. And, and uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I understand that. But I think that for all the reasons we're kind of talking about, um, many of those are becoming less relevant today. And, and uh, I think it's you know, young faculty like you who need to be kind of uh, leading the change. And, and I, and you, you know, you are, I think that it's quite um, fun to watch. Well, we're, we're all trying, <laughs> but I think yeah. it's changing. And I, I think another thing that's really changing and to bring up um, another um, theme that really threads through a lot of these chapters, but that you talk about in particular, when you're talking about this um, culture chapter um, yeah. is that part of this is also a part of a, the way that an institutional um, sort of very hermetic way of defining work um, and idea construction um, is is built is on this idea that error should be invisible. Um, that along the way you know, of actually creating a product, things happen, but you know things when things go wrong, you don't actually see them. And you talk about the importance of art as a process and the importance of process as being itself um, integral to this um, you know this set of values that you're trying to. I think very effectively um, celebrate here. And um, you do this by taking us through a series of um, exhibits that actually um, uh, were put on at uh, the, your art science labs, one by um, Ryoji Ikeda and one by Shilpa Gupta. Um, and this process of actually seeing all the steps along the way that weren't, you know, sort of clean and perfectly sealed off and that didn't always manifest as the projects or product we can point to and push and spray something at was really, really helpful um, here. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so uh, just to jump on the, the story of Shipa for a minute, um, it was, and then to maybe step back and talk more broadly as you are here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Shipa is a, a Shipa Gupta is a contemporary artist who lives in um Bombay, Mumbai, uh, today called Mumbai. And she um, has a, she's young, she must be in her early 30s, and is, um, you know, fascinating artist and, and quite engaged in uh, political and social issues. And she was interested, uh, came here to Paris, and we talked many times. And um, we were interested, I was interested in helping her come to some frontier of science where she could do a new experiment. And so ultimately, became interested in the notion of political terror and its um, uh, and, 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 and where it comes from, actually. And so we uh, <laughs> met with, oh, my gosh, so, so many different scientists from the Italian scientist who was studying mice and their, um, their reaction to um, sort of fearful signals and uh, uh, to um, MRI um, kind of imaging scientist in England and so on and so forth. And it was not working. And she was not really, it was not the, the their vocabulary was not um, hers at all. And we ended up, uh, you know, three months before the exhibition uh, in uh, Cambridge uh, in uh, Massachusetts and uh, met with uh, Mazarin Banerjee, who's a, uh, also Indian um, and uh, is a, incredible um, woman and uh, 
professor of uh, neuroscience uh, and psychology. And it led to, and it's something I, I describe in the, in the book, this poetic, very intense uh, dialogue between uh, Mazarin, who is a, uh, as a, as a scientist is, is very interested in the subconscious mind and how it influences us uh, with regard to prejudice and other things. And Shilpa ultimately ended up uh, creating a, a work which was several thousand microphones in a cloud kind of shape hanging from the ceiling. And as you walked into this space, these microphones, many of them were actually singing out at you. And it was Shippa's voice. And uh, actually, you know, it was sort of emotionally uh, heart-wrenching because she was singing. And there was other sounds, and it, it kind of moved as a, uh, like a train around the cloud. And it was uh, ultimately, uh, the, if you will, the subconscious uh, mind of humanity or the kind of... Uh, um, you know, the, the, those without a voice, if you will. Um, and, talk, and, and what, what had happened here uh, was that as she was doing this, right at the end, uh, there in November, there was a, uh, the, the uh, terrorist attacks in Mumbai. And so uh, Shipa was supposed to come to Paris, and we were, and she was holed up in her apartment, and these, you know, bar, I don't know if you remember that, but these bombs were going on. It was an incredible moment. And so the work, which is now in the permanent collection of the Louisiana Museum, was for all of us who participated in the process, just this stunning, you could hardly walk into the space and not uh, be emotional, actually. Um, and so I do, uh, in uh, describing this experiment, uh, reflect on the that process, uh, hard to pin down, even, even on a, a page, as the um, artistic process, which I uh, emphasize in the book is this sort of um, intuitive, image-driven, uh, comfortable with uncertainty, thriving and ambiguity process where truth is not the reproducibility, but the um, um, the validity in the sense that it's anchored in a comprehensible, identifiable uh, human experience. And um, that uh, was something that absolutely lived in Shippa's uh, project, and I do talk about the other project too. And I, I just then to take a step back and say that in a um, in you know here I am in Paris, right next to the Louvre and 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 uh, Saint Pompidou and, and these major cultural institutions, where um, art uh, is uh, easily um, defined in a very classical way. And yet, as you look at um, artistic creation today, it is very unclassifiable, and it is fascinating to look at this dichotomy between uh, art is process and art is outcome or science is process and science is outcome and uh, try and curate that, that part of the dichotomy, which is most uh, universal and is most uh, at stake when I say I'm an artist or I'm a scientist. And uh, I don't know that we do that very well, but that's the goal. 
And one of the things that that also lets us um, in the in the little time that we have left um, get to is another very important part of the the book and this um, project you're just you're describing here that we haven't yet talked about, which is the um, these kind of uh, vehicles for idea translation that have resulted in some actually concrete products that are helping to fund and support and sustain these um, these processes, right? And so one of the uh, projects that you describe among many is this MuseTrek um, yes. project that actually explicitly engaged with um, Gupta's work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, well, did I interrupt you? No, no, not at all. I'd love to, whatever you'd like to share about that, we'd love to hear. Well, let me um, make uh, the broad point first here that uh, at the end of the day, sustainability is a major question for all of us and certainly in a uh, creative environment um, having a sustainable model is key to uh, the freest possible uh, uh, creative um, work and action sustainability uh, at times has been related to uh, kings um, giving money for in the patron sense and uh, to you know ministries of culture and to maybe um, a Hollywood movie industry basically but it is um, fascinating to and, and a key today uh, to figure out how to make sustainable creative uh, work and not have it completely connected to, uh, you know, just be really explicit, either the industrial or the military um, um, industry uh, or um, um, organizations, um, which has been uh, much of the history of the last 50 years. If you look at how cre- the, the even what we talk about the, artistic and scientific um, creativity here. The reality is if you look at resources spent on creative work over the last five decades, it has been far and away on scientific research and, um, and, and related to um, clear uh, outcomes ultimately, um, even though early, fortunately a lot of it upstream is, is much more open-ended. So, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in a model where you can have a very open-ended um, kind of parallel uh, research environment, parallel to the uh, classical um, existing traditional scientific um, research process where art is the driver and, um, and the vocabulary and cultural uh, exhibition as opposed to peer-reviewed publication as the uh, means of uh, engagement and communication. And so the fact that things do come out and can be sold um, is important. And uh, and both it is encouraged investment in the early stage uh, work in that there's some um, belief that something will come out and it does also generate revenues. And so one of the uh, um, uh, projects that have come out here, uh, as you mentioned, is called MuseTrack. And MuseTrack has not been a big commercial success, but it was a fascinating uh, product and uh, process wherein we and uh, notably the students who uh, developed this track uh, were interested in coming back to this core issue of the process uh, if, being the focus 
uh, and yet, when you go into a museum, if you, and it's so fascinating to go in the Louvre and watch how 8 million people go through the Louvre every year, and it's just people are running through the Louvre, actually, with the maps and trying to get the, the few pieces of art. And, and so the thought was to try and create a, a platform whereby more and more people could actually enter into a cultural institution and have a drama in their minds like a curator of the Louvre has when he or she walks into the Louvre and immediately sees thousands of fascinating stories and is, is engaged in a way that um, we're not the first time we're in the, in the Louvre. And so we uh, thought about this news track and, 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 and came up with this platform, uh, basically a cell phone-based platform, whereby um, people could tell their own stories around works of art. And um, honestly, that project um, is, is very much in the air right now in terms of lots of other uh, media that are going on in, in, in museums right now. I'm kind of, there are lots of barriers to that. And, uh, and, and so it's almost a whole other conversation in itself. Um, but uh, maybe to leave that aside for a second, just say that we, the, the projects that right now are um, driving revenue uh, for the, um, what we do are, are very related to culinary uh, kind of uh, uh, creativity. And um, I, I maybe we'll end here by saying that we have found over the last several years that uh, the culinary art form is is a fascinating one for uh, many reasons, um, including uh, the fact that the public uh, enters very easily uh, into the experimental process and, and is engaged in a way that they are not always when uh, standing in front of an iPhone or in front of a uh, picture on a wall. And it has led to uh, just some really fun and now um, uh, useful uh, um, idea development around what we call um, aerosol cuisine and, and uh, now um, edible bottles, which wiki cells are two platforms that have led to investment and um, and and <laughs> frankly quite a quite a uh, an experience here over the last months is one of these products has, has come out and, and uh, in a very mass market way and so you've got the the, the lab guy suddenly in in the uh, in the complete um, mass market uh, environment and, and and it's just another uh, great learning process uh, and uh, and um, uh, as, you, as you as these ideas move from one local classroom setting to an exhibition to a, a store to uh, national television, the, um, the the they need tweaks, they need design changes, and all that are kind of adjusting to the uh, to the audience. And um, it's it's fascinating, and ultimately uh, part of the sustainable model. That's good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I um, teach a course on sensory forms of knowledge, um, and got to eat at El Bulli as as part of this, and teach. Um, about this sort of art science um, collaboration in the culinary world and students really, um, really relate to that uh, topic. So I can't wait to assign this book as well. Oh. well <laughs> thank you so much, um, David. I know I don't want to take up any more of your time, but if you, um, if you don't mind, if we could just end um, our conversation or this interview by, um, by asking you what's inspiring you, especially right now. I am, well, there's some things I can't talk about. 
But I am, uh, I am very uh, deeply involved in wiki cells, which are these um, edible uh, bioforms where we are uh, making uh, yogurts and fruit and other things that um, where everything is edible and uh, kind of based on the biological cell. Um, so maybe that's – and I actually have a product coming out just in a few weeks with Philippe Stark uh, called the WAH, W-A-H-H, um, which is a little spray. And um, – and uh, it, uh, we call these sprays quantum sensations, where we're um, looking to deliver sensations, whether they're incredible olfactive sensations or even kind of um, inebriated kind of sensations, but that have no duration. So they last just for a brief second and then they go away. And, uh, and so uh, it will be coming out on the 2nd of May. So that's, that's actually quite a, a significant project. Well, con- congratulations. <laughs> and thank you so much um, for taking time. And for listeners, there's a ton of material and really just wonderful um, stories and discussions in this book that we haven't had a chance to um, talk about today. But I hope listeners will um, be inspired to pick it up and read it for themselves. Thank you, Carla. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.